0: COVID has taught us, number one, even in these COVID times, epidemiologists are not public health, public health are not primary care, primary care are not scientists. We need to collaborate together to solve these problems.
1: Welcome to Transform It Forward, the podcast that gives you an inside look into the before and after of some of the world's most effective transformations. I'm your host, Paul French. On today's show, we're chatting with Anna Fote about digital transformation, specifically in today's age of COVID-19. I was really curious about Anna's approach to change communications and how she has managed to generate buy-in from customers and employees for new initiatives that are introduced at Sun Life Financial. Anna is a fantastic guest to join us for this episode. She grew up in the business world at BlackBerry Research in Motion as far back as 1999, where she was on the business side, closing deals with Visa, MasterCard, and IBM. She moved to IBM as the worldwide managing editor of their mobile-first platform, leading digital content marketing strategy. And today, she's the director of global digital transformation at Sun Life Financial. In fact, was recently named a top 20 woman to watch in technology. When she's not hustling her next deal or talking to entrepreneurs, you can find her sipping wine with friends, locked in a hot room trying to find elusive balance or swimming in Lake Superior. Anna, thanks for joining us on the show today. It seems kind of strange that we never had a chance to meet before we have a conversation like this, but I sure appreciate it.
0: It's in these weird COVID times that everything that seems weird is the new normal, so it's such a pleasure.
1: It is definitely the new COVID times. And that actually is my first question. You've been a disruptor for a long time and recognized for it and now as you look at the way the world has changed how is disruption going to change as we look at some large companies around the world
0: i've been thinking about it a lot actually and the thing that i've seen already change and i think it'll accelerate is this idea that change is risky and status quo is safe and the idea that there are experts that we should bow down to and listen to and i think COVID has taught us number one Even in these COVID times, epidemiologists are not public health. Public health are not primary care. Primary care are not scientists. We need to collaborate together to solve these problems. And people recognize doing nothing is actually riskier than trying something. So I look and I'm heartened by those two things. It's horrible that it's taken a global pandemic to force change. But a whole bunch of stuff that never was going to happen literally happened overnight.
1: As you're a company that is stuck in the world of Jeffrey Moore and has to figure out how they can figure out how to get stuck out of the status quo. What are the slow and steady ways that they can actually get out and start to move ahead?
0: You look at things like virtual visits for healthcare. Wasn't really a thing. And lots of people had lots of reasons why it would never be a thing. What COVID has taught us is, I think in Canada, they're up over 3,000%. All the objections around, well, it's just not good medicine, or I want to have that personal connection with my patients. Overnight. 3,000% increase and really what facilitated it is the government created a billing code and the technology has been ready for a really long time, but the cultural will to do things differently changed. Now people have their eyes open and this scary new thing isn't quite so scary anymore. So I think a whole bunch of stuff is going to change radically. And then it's like a pendulum, right? It'll swing back a little bit and that's probably a good thing, but I hope in all industries, we're certainly seeing it in the insurance industry In lots of ways, we can't take a look at an actuarial cap table and learn a whole heck of a lot because this is a whole new data set.
1: Do you look at your current business, how do you model for that? How do you consider what those outsized risks might be versus the risk of not doing anything where your health population can't afford for you to wait?
0: We made a lot of changes very quickly. Almost overnight, was able to take our Lumino directory, which is a product that we offer to all Canadians that give them a sense of all the paramedical providers that they could go see like a chiropractor and a massage therapist, example. And we overlaid all of those providers that were doing virtual visits. And we did it fast. Like, I was shocked at the speed at which we were able to do that. And the other thing that we did very quickly is penned a deal with a virtual care company called Dialog and offered that free to all of our members because it was the right thing to do. And insurance companies, no particular finger pointing at Sun Life, but it's a big old conservative industry that tends to move slowly and I think quite a few insurers have moved quickly and decisively, which, again, it heartens me.
1: Have you seen any impact to care at this point?
0: When I'm not at my day job, I do a lot of health tech work as a patient advocate. And, you know, there's massive consequences, both unintended and kind of unavoidable. I think now we're at day 80. So no one has seen elderly people in long-term care homes, children in group home settings, They've not been with their loved ones for 80 days. There's consequences to that decision. I mean, there's a risk to letting everyone mull about, move around. But there's serious mental health consequences to take this course of action. There's, I think it's 400,000 surgeries so far that are going to need to be rescheduled. Like, it's hard to imagine how to even think about that problem. Who gets their surgery first? How long can people reasonably wait? How do you test all those people before they come back into hospital? So I think there's lots of people that are suffering for a bunch of different reasons. And I think everyone's trying to do the right thing, but even the right thing sometimes have dire and unintended consequences.
1: Given the fact that we know that COVID provided the push for a lot of companies to move away from the status quo, what were some of those demand signals that made somebody think, okay, we can't wait anymore. We have to actually move beyond the innovator's dilemma we live in currently to do something that might move us out of our comfort zone, but also might protect us for the next 10 years.
0: There's a project that I've been kind of mulling and noodling on around the number of folks that don't have any kind of private insurance and drug equitability. And that was kind of like a, oh, Anna, you're trying to save the world conversation. We're in the business of making money, which is true. I try to bleed those two things together when I can, but they don't always gel. Certainly now, this idea of gig workers or precarious workers has become a much bigger target market to address. And so the ripple chain effects of people making decisions, and I keep reading about the history because I always feel like maybe it gives you a little bit of a window into what comes next. But I was fascinated with people with means during the depression started wearing jeans as kind of an act of solidarity with people that wore jeans because they were workers. And then it just became a whole category of clothes. And I read that and I thought, hmm, It's true. It's the whole don't hoard toilet paper at the grocery store. Even if you can fill your cart up at Walmart, you look like a bit of a social pariah when you have a $500 cart of steak when other people don't have a job.
1: The balance at this point, I think, has made a tremendous difference as companies try to make their own decisions and look at how they can protect not only their brand, but also the perspective of their teams for those same reasons, right? How do we put ourselves out there as people who are supportive through this process and not necessarily people who are gonna try to profiteer from it? Anna's the kind of person you want in your organization if you have any hope of disruption or transformation. She can empathetically look at all the sides of the problem, but challenge you to move beyond your current thought And that is the only way you're able to move the company forward. Even for people who passionately share the same mindset, their idea on the path to the end state is going to be different. You have to accept that tension. You have to embrace it. Lots of companies like to talk about transformation, but until you can change an organizational mindset and culture, you can never really make it happen. You obviously have an amazing background where you balance your disruption and your innovation, but also design thinking, which gives you the capability to actually make it real across a variety of different silos in a big company, for example. How do you bring that theoretical concept to a big, huge insurance company who maybe doesn't look at it that same way?
0: A little more than six months ago, we used to have this kind of big ceremonial meeting. It was only with certain levels of folks in the organization, and people prepared these PowerPoint decks for weeks, and it was all lovely, don't get me wrong, but not a whole heck of a lot actually got accomplished, other than people patting themselves on the back and clapping for one another. It was collegial. And so I said to my boss, if we're trying to do the work of transforming the company, And we know one of the challenges is we're siloed, just like any other big bureaucracy. Why don't we make the IT people start thinking about the problems that they're architecting for through the lens of a business person? And he went, what? I said, yeah, what if we invited like all kinds of people? (laughs) That's
1: ridiculous, Anna.
0: (laughs) He's like, how would you do that? And I said, well, I would invite directors and AVPs and VPs. And we wouldn't let them sit with their teams and we'd mix them up. And we gave them a problem to solve, a real one from the business, not a made-up one. And we had the business person for whom this was a problem come and present it. And I didn't give them a whole lot of instruction. And I kind of let them solve for it. Because that's normally how we work. We get orders from the business based on their strategy. And then we try to architect a thing. So they went off and built a thing. And they presented it back to the business. And of course, there was no consistency between the groups. People misinterpreted the problem all over the place. And I said, I tricked you a little bit because I made you do this with your arms tied behind your back. You don't even know who you're designing for. You don't really understand the problem. And you did what we always do. Some people built these beautiful technical diagrams that bore no relation to a problem that was actually needed. It was just a cool thing that the architect wanted to build. So then I said, okay, we're going to do it again, but now I'm going to give you users and I want half the table to be business people and half the table to be architects. And as they're working, They said, oh my God, why don't we always work like this? I was like, gold star, my work here is done. (laughs) This is the point. You should always get requirements, work with the business people, have a certain level of comfortable tension. We don't have all the answers, they don't have all the answers and let's not design it in a vacuum. And now that's not scary anymore.
1: And that's fantastic. When you see those epiphanies happen, it warms your heart and you're so excited and you wonder why it hasn't been like this forever. And then people leave that meeting room and the gravitational pull changes and you go back to too often the way it was before. And you have a deeper understanding, a little bit more empathetic approach to the people that you're working with. How did you manage to keep the energy and to keep the execution in a way that actually turned that into action and reality for the business?
0: Well, I mean, I don't bat a thousand. You can't get everyone all the time. And I often say to my team, you can't make people do stuff. Like I know in the old organizational role, it was all hierarchical and you kind of gave people orders and in some way you thought you were making them do it. You can't make people do anything. This idea of transformational change scares the pants off lots of people. So my joke is I lack the gene for self-preservation. I have my whole life. (laughs) I would literally be the coyote character running off the cliff going, oh, shit. (laughs) I've now run off a cliff as I'm falling to my death. But I just think I'm really sure this is the right thing. I'm okay to be wrong. But most people hate that feeling. Most people want some guardrails to be given almost like the answer key. Do your job. This is what it looks like when you get it right. So you don't kind of get everyone to do this kumbaya thing where we all hold hands and say we're going to change. You get a couple of super crazy people like me. Then I have to find some co-conspirators who maybe also lack a little bit of that gene. And you might only get 10 or 15 people, but they're all rowing a boat. You know, I laugh. One of the execs that I work with gave me this term. There's a lot of hecklers and spectators. And I thought, man, oh, man, you're right. Like, if you're not interested in my crazy train, that's totally okay. But get out of my way. Don't heckle me or spectate. But what we found when we do some of these programs is the very people who are the biggest hecklers, once they see for themselves, how this thing could be, they're the biggest champions. So I always think of it like a bus route, like not everyone's getting on the bus on the first stop, totally okay. A couple people get on the bus, let's see what we can make with the small group. Next stop, less risky, more people get on the bus. Eventually, there'll be more people on the bus and off the bus, and then your work's done. And you can't get everyone all the time anyways.
1: It's clear to me that it's more than just Anna's determination that's helped her drive success. It's a completely different mindset of how you can challenge the status quo in order to get transformational change. I loved Anna's analogy of getting people on the bus. Change is really hard and some people understand the risk of it and are willing to accept it early. Some people want to see other people accept it for them. Axway's transformation was quite similar, but slightly different in that the focus was placed squarely on the customer, not on the internal requirements. It gave us a little bit of a different perspective to try to understand how we would transform by making sure we spent every moment looking through the eyes of the customer. You said something really important, which is the idea that you have to be okay with not batting a 1,000, realizing that you can get in the Baseball Hall of Fame if you batted 300. What level of leadership does it take for a company to grab a hold of a business problem you're trying to solve and say, follow me with a small group of insurgents, and if it works, that's awesome, and if it doesn't, we'll try again?
0: I feel like I had the great fortune of growing up at Research in Motion, which most people know as BlackBerry. We were this little scrappy company. And when I joined in 1999, no one had even heard of us. And I watched leaders model this idea that consultants don't have the answers. We're doing something that's never been done before. All we can do is try to work as fast as possible and get as smart as we can as quickly as we can. And so Jim Balsley has been a huge mentor to me. And he would purposefully put people on opposing missions. And it was kind of a bit of a fight to a death kind of thing. And he's like, I have to bet on three or four horses. I don't know who's going to win. I'm not cherry picking. I'm going to set three or four groups off in radically different directions. It's strategic. It's not chaotic. One of you will come back victorious, and that will be the thing we shall do. And we were all kind of okay with that as well. And so when I worked other places, and I was like, oh, that's very different than most companies work. Most companies cook something up in a boardroom pay consultants to massage it a little bit and the whole thing is decided within a millimeter of its execution before it starts as opposed to a leader saying I don't know what the right answer is but I trust that you're smart enough that you will figure it out it's been everything right and I kind of look around and say what do you think Accenture knows that we don't know I mean I don't mean to malign consultants but you know guys if this is super critical we can't outsource the thinking we got to do the thinking we got to figure this out
1: It's incredibly important. And to take that leadership position is really hard in a world where I would imagine as a woman in technology, sometimes you may be the only woman in the room. I don't know exactly what the makeup is at Sun Life. Having been in the technology business for almost 30 years, it isn't the most common scenario. So do you find that as something that helps you stretch forward where people look at you and say, follow her. She must have done something right to get here. Or do you take that as something as an obligation to try and drag the rest of the world ahead with you?
0: Quite honestly, I've mostly been underestimated my whole life. Everyone says, I don't understand why you're not upset. I said, I don't care because they don't even see me coming and it gets done. They're like, oh, you must be the PR girl. Do you work in marketing? Are you the events coordinator? It's like, listen, I don't really care who you think I am. I'm here to make a difference and try to change things. And so being underestimated can be very powerful I do spend a lot of time mentoring women in tech and just say, like, you can choose to be angry and God knows you have a right to be angry, or you can take it and try to twist it into something that will be useful to you to move your own initiative forward. And I've always opted for humor and stacking my deck of cards and playing them when I can.
1: That's fantastic. It is clear you've managed to navigate through what's a really, really complicated time, and especially in an insurance company where risk management isn't known for taking a lot of risks. When you're looking at something that's disruptive, where we know we have a problem to fix and we know what the ideal state might be, but it might be a really rocky road to get there. It's an awful cold swim in Lake Superior. Since I grew up in Michigan, I've actually done it. But how do you keep yourself moving along? What can be that really cold swim in order to get to what that looks
0: like? Being really focused on the outcome and not on like timelines that are pre-boxed with milestones and KPIs. And I think that it's really easy to get wrapped up in that. That can be a full-time job of PowerPoint chart making, Excel division. And you just say, we know that when these things exist and, you know, exist together collectively, the thing that we're actually trying to do is this. And that's the outcome we're looking to drive. And if you got to make a bunch of course corrections and iterate and pivot on the way, that's okay. But you've got to always be focused on the outcome that you're looking to achieve. It's hard to do because it's like, it's messy, right? And it's hard and sometimes it's long and complicated. So it gives people much more comfort to say, the project is all green. (laughs) We're going to deliver something that no one cares about, but it's green everywhere.
1: (laughs) Yeah, our sprint planning was effortless.
0: (laughs) I remember talking to one of the big bank CIOs once and saying, how do you de-risk the risk of time? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you guys have these very formal projects that you spin up big executive projects and they're in boardrooms and there's PowerPoint and and then you launch the thing but if it took you a year to launch a project that's going to take six months what's the cost of the year like what if you just started tomorrow and he's like I don't even understand what you're talking about I said well there's a cost in taking the time but I don't think people generally think of it it's like no no no. it's always time well spent to gaze at our navel it's always scary to jump into the deep end without a life preserver and I don't actually think that's true
1: I couldn't agree with you more. I think having a bias to action is often the thing that successful companies have. If it doesn't work, that's okay. But we started yesterday, not tomorrow. And that will get you where you need to go long-term. So here's my last question. What do you want to be when you grow up?
0: I don't want to grow up. I'm not planning on it. I mean, I'm getting older, but I'm not growing up. When people ask me about my career, I laugh and I go, what career? I just say yes to things. My career advice is Do it, especially when you're young. I mean, I was on a plane 75% of the time in my 20s and 30s. So I got to just do stuff. And BlackBerry let me do stuff. They let all kinds of kids do stuff we had no right, no real reason to do, but we got to do it. And so I just say yes. People ask me to do stuff. I say yes. Where is it going to lead to? I don't know. But if you surround yourself with smart people that want to get stuff done in the world, then it's not going to be boring.
1: I enjoy talking to Anna. Five things come to mind about the time we spent together. First, the pandemic has shown us that companies are now willing to move and adapt more quickly to change in the face of those changing market conditions. Second, although most companies work in a series of comfortable organizational silos, we've got to figure out a way to break those down, working through the tension, getting the perspective of our colleagues and our customers in order to create real change third transformational change is hard and it's scary no one likes the idea of being wrong or feeling wrong or being judged and when you're driving change you've got to get people together with you to see the value that you see and the value you can potentially bring ultimately your hecklers will likely become your biggest champions once they see the vision and according to Anna just say yes try new things try new paths just see where it leads you and if it doesn't work just try it again Thanks for listening to Transform It Forward, the podcast that gives you an inside look at some of the world's most effective transformations. If you like this episode, be sure to give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple Podcasts.